Music Hall, it's the American Theatre Wing's 62nd Annual Tony Awards. Presented by the Broadway League and the American Theatre Wing. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Welcome back to My Little Tonys. I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. And now we're going to tackle a year that was actually the very first year that I watched the Tonys live. It's 2008. And it was probably the year, the last year that I watched organically. I think that this was a, around the time that I tried to unsuccessfully shake musical theater <laughs> and theater from my personality type. So. Well, we're so glad to have you back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think I speak for everyone. So these Tonys were broadcast on June 15th, 2008. They were hosted by Whoopi Goldberg. The best musical nominees were, we just got to get this out of the way up front because I feel like we keep forgetting to do this. Mm -hmm. um, the best musical nominees were In the Heights with 13 nominations and four wins, Passing Strange with seven nominations and one win, and Crybaby and Xanadu, which had four nominations apiece with zero wins. And then we had, we're not going to talk about them this episode, but we had um, the best revival nominees were South Pacific, which had 11 nominations and seven wins. So South Pacific was really the big winner of the mm -hmm. night. Sunday in the Park with George, uh, nine nominations and zero wins. Gypsy, seven nominations and three wins. And Grease with one nomination and zero wins. Yeah, and it was a very crowded season. There were 35 new productions, and 23 of them were non-musical plays, and 12 were musicals. Yeah, and I think this is a really strange and kind of cool season like something I obviously didn't appreciate entering into it as you know someone who was just sort of getting interested in Broadway it's not that I wasn't interested before but this was the first year that I was really starting to kind of take more of an active role in knowing what was up and like trying to see you know new productions and whatever but I think the biggest kind of surprise of this year is that you know it ended up being this showdown between Passing Strange and In the Heights whereas before the season began, everyone was like, this is going to be between The Little Mermaid and Young Frankenstein, which were, you know, the two big budget, like Disney versus Mel Brooks. And they ended up not being nominated for Best Musical. And Young Frankenstein only got three nominations and The Little Mermaid only got two. It really was this like upset of giants who, you know, had this like brand recognition that everyone thought they were going to win. And it's also very interesting because Young Frankenstein wasn't releasing its numbers. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. So they were in one review of the year leading up to the Tony's piece I read, they were, you know, saying all these numbers about attendance. And then they, you know, mentioned that Young Frankenstein was being really secretive about everything. It's actually kind of feels good to see both of these uh, giants fall. This is from the New York Times, the piece from right before the Tony nominations came out called A Season with an Unpredictable Plot. Turn the clock back to July. You're making your way through an undisclosed Broadway watering hole on a night when the summer is at full boil and Manhattan has switched places with East Hampton. At one of the few occupied tables, a couple of bronze gentlemen are nursing icy martinis, idly handicapping the coming season. Here are the topics of conversation. The new Mel Brooks musical Young Frankenstein, Disney's The Little Mermaid. Here are several topics that do not come up. A rap and hip-hop infused show about Latino families written by a 27-year-old. An autobiographical rock musical about a black artist's adventures in Berlin. A wildly lucrative production of a Tennessee Williams play starring an all-black cast. A play from Chicago with a cast of unknowns and a seemingly unobstructed path to the Tony Award. And certainly not the musical that is already playing around the corner. The goofy one with the roller skates and the intentionally bad accents. So I think that really sort of sums up like how fun and surprising the season ended up being compared to how kind of boring and commercial it could have been. 
Yeah, I think that my initial superficial read of the season was that it was... I unfairly thought that this era of musicals was not as brilliant as like some of these new musicals are. (laughs) And something else that maybe had something to do with it, which I thought was interesting, is I think at this point, Ben Brantley was already the chief drama critic for the New York Times. But three of the four reviews, and like this is still, you know, I think throughout most of Broadway history, like it's sort of understood that like the New York Times review is what will make or break your show. And I think, you know, recently that has not been as true, but I think at this point it definitely still was. Ben Brantley really loves like ripping shows a new one and like doing these sort of hit pieces, but he didn't review three out of four of the shows that ended up being best musical nominees, I think because they were considered underdogs and like not as important. Like he reviewed Young Frankenstein, he reviewed Little Mermaid. And the only best musical nominee he did review was Crybaby, which he which he was like did. a total hit piece. <laughs> So I think it's like by not having him review these musicals, like I think maybe it did help them. Like it definitely did help them. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting even comparing Charles Isherwood's review of Xanadu to Ben Brantley's review of a show that I think head over heels from this past season that has some sort of kinship to it. It was just like interesting to see Isherwood's read of Xanadu as like actually what it is, whereas I feel like Ben Brantley is like goal to kind of rip it a new one he like didn't let himself read it for anything besides like what its surface value was so passing strange and in the heights are two like very unusual shows that have like an unusual amount in common so it's like very interesting that they both came up in the same season and were competing against each other they have a lot in common but they also have a lot of differences and one thing that they do have in common is that they don't that their scores are not what we would traditionally think of as like show music going back to ben branley being a real party pooper even though he didn't get to review either passing stranger in the heights he does his like pre-tony rundown and it doesn't seem like he's too hot on either of them the word is that broadway got hip this year the front runners for the tony awards to be distributed tonight at radio city music hall include two musicals that embrace the sass and sputter of salsa rap and hip-hop in the heights and passing strange and a long and lively play, August Osage County, by Tracy Letts, a writer previously known for gut-churning shockers that were offbeat even on off-Broadway. Their dominance among the list of nominees is widely regarded as a hopeful sign of new sprightliness in a cultural dinosaur. Never mind that hip-hop is practically an ancient art form in the recording industry. Broadway, say the blurbs dangling from the marquees, has been given a much-needed transfusion of new blood. Yet to look closely at these shows is to see that something like a reverse transfusion has taken place, with old blood pumped into new bodies. This year's Broadway is drenched in yesteryear's conventions and an old-fashioned earnestness that is not merely a pose. It's been an enjoyable and occasionally invigorating season, but to call it iconoclastic is to misread it altogether. Even more than Hollywood, Broadway is now in the business of manufacturing, almost exclusively, comfort food, products that soothe and reassure by their familiarity. Both In the Heights, Lin-Manuel Miranda's exuberant evocation of a Latino neighborhood in Washington Heights, and Passing Strange, Stu's portrait of the African-American artist as a young man in search of his identity, are misty-eyed, animated shrines to the importance of family ties and being faithful to where you come from. Like Judy Garland's Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, the restless central figures discover that their elusive heart's desires have been in their own backyards all the time. It's like, what does he want? Yeah, (laughs) that's so bitter and (laughs) misdirected. I just don't understand what his angle is with that. It's also just so, feels so contrary to what everyone else was saying this season where they're like, oh, this is like the year of Obama. Like, this is like the start of a new generation. He, He loves to have that kind of attitude, but it's not helping anybody. 
Michael Riedel, he wrote this piece that I don't really think had any necessarily had a lot of basis in reality being like, could passing strange sweep? So this article is Vulture kind of covering that, giving a rundown of what each show represents. It's one thing to give the best musical award to a show like Spring Awakening, which is rockish and fun, but is still made by people who love musical theater and Broadway. It's another thing to give the award to a show that consciously rejects Broadway tradition. To great effect, it must be said, written by and starring a guy who's made it clear he doesn't really care for, well, Broadway. If you asked all of us, you could probably count the number of Broadway shows we've seen on two hands, Stu says, describing himself as a guy you have to drag to the theater. Contrast this to In the Heights, whose Lin-Manuel Miranda speaks enthusiastically about his love of musicals, and whose show embraces those traditions, even as it spices them up with a touch of reggaeton and hip-hop. Sure, this makes the show a little more energetic and bland, as Riedel snipes, but it also makes it a much better crowd-pleaser than Passing Strange, even if Passing Strange is more innovative a show. And I think, you know, kind of pivoting into talking about the actual Tonys... Charles Isherwood had a piece called Broadway's Not Stale, So Why Are the Tonys? And he, so the show opened with um, The Circle of Life, which a number of people uh, (laughs) called out as being a really weird choice. And like, it is celebrating the 10-year anniversary of The Lion King. But he said, The ceremony, ostensibly the occasion for the theater industry to honor the artists who they believe created the best work of the year, was primarily an infomercial for the generic Broadway brand, meaning the big, splashy shows in which Disney specializes. Cramming in numbers or brief, uneven visual gags from what seemed like every new or old musical on Broadway, the ceremony was like an audiovisual version of the theater directory advertisements in the New York Times. The parceling out of the awards themselves felt like an afterthought. A good dozen of the awards were handed out before the televised ceremony, more than in any past year. And you know, reading that before rewatching it, I was like, this is kind of like a, it really is a Broadway commercial, more so than I think any other ceremony we've covered. Yeah, I totally agree. I think even in the 2015 ceremony, it goes back to, it wasn't so much all business as this was. Yeah, and even 2005, like, so, you know, Whoopi hosts, and she does, she does get to come out. I thought it was very fun that she comes out in all the different costumes, Mm because, like, if I was hosting the Tonys, that would be, I would, like, demand that I get to dress up as all these different characters. Yeah. (laughs) Or I would be like, I'm going to do the whole thing in character as Fosca. (laughs) Sing my angel of music. But she doesn't even have an opening monologue. Like no. She doesn't have any jokes. She just comes out and gives like a one minute spiel where she's like, all right, it's the Tonys. Like, we're going to see all these performances and give out some awards and, you know, buy tickets to a show. It was really weird. And as you can tell, this is going to be a big show. I mean, we have tons of performances. We're reuniting the original company of Rent. That's going to blow your mind, blow the roof off. And tonight, in addition to all the nominated musicals and revivals that you're going to see, numbers from some of the other shows that are nominated with performances and music, and maybe it'll inspire you to come see a Broadway show where anything can happen. Dreams can come true. So now I'm going to stop talking because if I do, it'll give the winners an extra 4.2 seconds to talk about how fantastic it is to win a Tony. And I ought to know because I got one. Yeah, but as a longtime view watcher, I was not surprised, but I thought that they would give her a little more to work with. Yeah, totally. And you know, even though like opening with the circle of life is weird, it still it still worked on me. 
you know, seeing that elephant, I was like, still got it. I would say that this circle of life was better than the 1998 <laughs> one, but maybe that's just because the quality of the yeah. uh, recording has improved over the years. No, I don't know. I think that it was still a strange choice. And they had, you know, sort of as commercial break bumpers, they had like people, they really did represent pretty much every show that was currently running. Yeah. And they had, um, but you got to see sort of some old friends who were currently in those shows. Like you had Carolee Carmelo, who was in Mamma Mia, and you have current Tony nominee Sarah Stiles, who's up for Tootsie, was in Avenue Q at the time. It's nice to see everyone's little glow ups. Yeah, it was also fun to see like the cast of Hairspray, the yeah. seventh. <laughs> They're like, with we're... George Went. Yes. <laughs> um, and I also like that they, Whoopi was introduced as being a Tony winner, and she also mentions her Tony win in the speech but as we have mentioned here she won her tony as a producer for thoroughly modern millie which is like (laughs) i mean and she has been on broadway and i love Whoopi. i'm not trying to take anything away from her but it is kind of funny that i feel like it seems like it was trying to give the impression that she won as a performer which is not true (laughs) (laughs) um yeah also she was on broadway this season or for a show that was nominated this she was in xanadu (laughs) yeah yeah but i think that wasn't until that was in the summer after this ceremony Okay, so let's talk about In the Heights. Or should we start with Crybaby because it was the first performance? Let's do In the Heights first. Okay, let's just, yeah. So In the Heights opened March 9th, 2008, closed January 9th, 2011, with 1,184 performances, uh, music and lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda, book by Chiara Alegria Hudas, directed by Thomas Kale and choreographed by Andy Blankenbuehler. And the synopsis is... And I, every synopsis I found for this sucked. It was, they were all really corny. This was sort of the best one I found. In the Heights centers on a variety of characters living in the neighborhood of Washington Heights on the northern tip of Manhattan. At the center of the show is Usnavi, a bodega owner who looks after the aging Cuban lady next door, pines for the gorgeous girl working in the neighboring beauty salon, and dreams of winning the lottery and escaping to the shores of his native Dominican Republic. Meanwhile, Nina, a childhood friend of Usnavi's, has returned to the neighborhood for her first year at college with surprising news for her parents, who have spent their life savings on building a better life for their daughter. Let's start with how the show kind of came to be, because it's it had a really long gestation period. Lynn was working on it since, I think he said he started when he was 19. Yeah, his then, sophomore year of college. Yeah, and, and then he was 28 when it came to Broadway. Mm-hmm. He started working on it in 1999 while he was a student at Wesleyan University. Um, and then it sort of, you know, took all of these different forms. They did a workshop. They did an off-Broadway production at 37 Arts, which ended up transferring. it. And it didn't get, I think a lot of people were kind of surprised that it ended up transferring because it definitely got very positive reviews, but they weren't like the kind of, you know, unequivocal raves you might expect to make that kind of financial gamble. Yeah, that's totally true. And also, I feel like a lot of the people who have written about it said that, you know, a lot of the same problems that it had off Broadway followed it to Broadway. One of the interesting things about the show that like doesn't really they talk about it a lot in the Broadway backstory podcast episode but you don't really see it a lot in the other mythology of the show is that like 
sort of the original inspiration for it was Lynn having a friend, like a close friend that he grew up with, like come out to him after they were both sort of grown up and had left the neighborhood. So there was a gay main character, Lincoln, who uh, was sort of in this love triangle where he was in love with the Benny character. Eventually they were like, this isn't working and like he got killed. Well, what is interesting about that to me is that I think one of the producers was like, Lynn, like it's tired. That story's been told. They, and then Lynn's like, yeah. And then I went to go see Avenue Q and like was like, yeah, I don't need to tell this story. It's like, uh, what? <laughs> because like Lynn also like made the obvious point that like you know this is like a really stigmatized thing in like the latino community and it's also like gay storylines are so tired so we're just gonna replace them with only hetero storylines like yeah i don't know yeah especially with how tired and like soap opera the plots ended up being yeah and like it's funny because hilton owls in his new yorker review he didn't really give it a full review but he comments on sort of the homoerotic energy between Usnavi and Benny and how like that's more interesting than any of the actual romance in it. Yeah, it's actually a real I ha- I pulled the quote. It's really beautiful. Much like West Side Story, the musical purports to be about young heterosexual lovers, but its most dramatically fulfilling relationships are between men. Single and vaguely sleepy and hyperkinetic all at once, Usnavi can't seem to connect with women, unlike his best friend, the infinitely more manly Benny. The play is heavy with plot but one quickly tunes out the mechanics of it for the charms of watching Usnavi hang with Benny in the shadows of the George Washington Bridge. And you know what I thought was kind of interesting is that, you know, Lynn was working on it by himself for so many years and they were like, we need to bring in a book writer for you. So they brought in Kiara. And ultimately, like, I think people in the reviews ended up singling the book out as being the weakest part of it. But it was like, she was just coming in to sort of do damage control Mm -hmm. and kind of ended up being blamed for like, you know, not being able to make sense of what was already there. And she ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize like a few years later. So Mm -hmm. it seems like they're doing major revisions for the movie, just like based on the casting, because I think they've like added a bunch of new characters. So I think it'll be interesting to see, like considering how much both of them have like grown as artists and writers over the past 10 years, I'm very curious to see what the movie, like if the movie ends up sort of fixing some of those those issues. Yeah, it's also like, I think that it's like a really common thing with young people who get like approached by and handed over tons of money where it's like producers or agents or whoever see young people doing their thing downtown and are like, oh, like we love it. It's so you, it's so you, but like actually it needs to be like this. And then like when it actually does get to the point where it is like on Broadway, they're like, well, what happened? happened yeah it reminds me of the like intro harvey firestein makes in i think it's the 2003 tonys where he introduces best book and he's like it's only like when a musical is a flop like that anyone even notices the book writer and then it's all our fault (laughs) like i feel like being the book writer is secretly like the most thankless like job on broadway yeah writing a good musical book is really really hard which is actually interesting because in this season there are two musical books that stand out as outstanding that's true that you know all of that aside i think we've sort of come into it guns blazing to say not nice things about it but i think we both are like very impressed with the score and especially considering you know how young he was it's really an incredible achievement that like he's writing at this sophisticated level and it says here that it's not the first musical he wrote but it's his first you know professional musical he produced Mm -hmm. yeah i think that one of the most satisfying things about doing the research for this episode is really getting a handle on like the man myth legend (laughs) of lin-manuel miranda because i think that all of the acclaim that he gets is really well deserved even just hearing the 
process of working on this where he was just writing and writing and writing and writing. It does seem like a little weird that they would bring in an outsider book writer just because like I think that the story was like so his and like I don't think it was like oh I have these like three really good songs like how are we going to make it fit like I think that like his lyric writing style and his music writing style are really integrated into the actual like overall storytelling of the show so the New York Times did an interesting profile on him I think this is when when it was off Broadway because he has a very interesting background while it may seem that Mr. Miranda brought hip-hop and Latin flavored sounds to the traditional musical he was actually a Broadway baby first His father, a community organizer turned major league political consultant, and his mother, a psychologist, both from Puerto Rico, introduced him early on to Man of La Mancha and the unsinkable Molly Brown. By the time he graduated from the elite Hunter College High School, Mr. Miranda had acted in a string of school shows, directed a production of West Side Story, and written several musicals. So he has musical bona fides. What about the experience of growing up in Washington Heights? Most of my friends were white and Jewish, said Mr. Miranda, a profoundly affable young man who constantly shifts between energized and self-deprecating. As for the local Latino teenagers, I was pretty isolated from them. With few friends in the neighborhood where he lived, weekends meant a lot of watching television, listening to music, and making homemade movies. I was really a self-entertained kid, he said. But later, like countless college students before him, Mr. Miranda discovered where he was from once he had left. At Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, he moved into the Latino student house. One summer in college, he got a job covering Washington Heights for Manhattan Times, which became kind of a seminar course on the neighborhood and its residents. When he decided to write a musical for a theater on campus, he drew on the boleros and traditional Latin sounds he had mostly ignored growing up and the wordplay of lyrically dexterous rap groups like The Far Side and Black Sheep he listened to in high school. So I think that kind of shares a lot with Passing Strange, where it's like both these artists who feel kind of like both like insiders and outsiders and kind of like grappling with, you know, your identity and what it means. Like, I feel like Passing Strange is a much more direct exploration of it. And it really shows the difference between like Lynn and Stu, just like, Mm -hmm. you know, where they like have a lot more in common in their background than like the final product shows. Yeah, no, I think that that's totally true. And I think that that like brings up this question that I think is like totally unfair where, you know, I think both, like, Stu and even more so, I think, because of, like, the breakout success of In the Heights, like, Lynn has had to, like, answer these questions of, like, why aren't you, like, talking about this or that? Or, like, if this is, like, the Latino musical, like, I think that it is, like, more than anything. I think that, like, it's easier for Stu because it is, like, so framed around him that it's, like, well, this is my story, whereas, like, I think that Lynn unfairly has to carry the burden of like people you know asking him all these questions that a white person who would make like a show about their town in minnesota (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i think there's also like i mean first of all like passing strange is not really a traditional broadway musical Mm -hmm. in the way that in the heights is like in the heights is basically fiddler on the roof yeah you know i think there is like that burden of representation where like the only real latino representation in musicals up in that point had been west side story and like maybe the cape man if you want to you know acknowledge that that is around like i think in the heights really is like purposely pushing up against that by being like there are no gangs in this like this Mm -hmm. is a very like warm like family which i think is fine and good like i understand why he did that but it it makes a lot of sense as being like i'm trying to sort of push back against these like stereotypes about this neighborhood yeah it's funny i'm like imagining someone like watching 
watching Fiddler on the Roof and being like, well, that's not how my village was. <laughs> I think that like when people have asked Lynn, why aren't there gangs, blah, blah, blah. He's like, well, that's just like not the world that I grew up in. People make this claim that like that's like so unheard of and that like people don't have this experience. But it's like, I feel like I even know so many people who have had like a similar experience to him. It's also funny because he did grow up in Inwood and like when asked about like why <laughs> the show wasn't set in Inwood, he makes two very good points. One being that like because of the hills, like Washington Heights is automatically more dramatic, which I think is <laughs> really true. And also he's like in wood. He like tried singing in wood and he's like, see, like <laughs> it's not as musical as Washington Heights. But he actually says in that same profile that is in the Heights is an amalgam of every musical he's ever seen, including Rent, West Side Story, and Fiddler on the Roof. And he also says Phantom someplace. Yeah, I think he, like, is not the only one to be like, <laughs> you know, I saw this musical and I was, like, a weird, like, freaky little kid and it was about this, like, freaky guy who uses music to make people like him. And I was like, that could be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually a pretty strong selling point. <laughs> So the New York Times review was very positive about the show, both on and off Broadway, had its reservations, but they loved Lynn. And this is how the review began. It has been lamented in certain circles that they don't make Broadway musical stars the way they used to. We'll not see the likes of Ethel Merman again, or Mary Martin, or John Raitt, or for that matter, Patti LuPone or Mandy Patinkin. Come on, everybody, let's give a big sad sigh. Oh, let's not. While the manufacture of matinee idols and worship-ready divas, not to mention the sturdy vehicles they rode to fame, may be in decline, the theater has not gone out of the star-making business entirely. If you stroll down to the Richard Rogers Theater, where the spirited musical In the Heights opened on Sunday night, you'll discover a singular new sensation, Lin-Manuel Miranda commanding the spotlight as if he were born in the wings. As you watch Mr. Miranda bound jubilantly across the stage, tossing out the rhymed verse currently known as rap like fistfuls of flowers, you might find yourself imagining that this young man is music personified, a sprightly new Harold Hill from the barrio where the sweet if sentimental musical is set. Pretty soon after the win, they announced that they were making um, the movie version starring Lynn, directed by Kenny Ortega, who directed the High School Musical franchise. So that never materialized, but um, I'm glad that they waited to do it now because I think even when it premiered, the original cast was way too old. So it looks like, you know, they've cast it very age appropriate, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, learning a lesson from the Rent movie. I think that one thing that really stood out to me was that the only thing that really survives from the original production that he did, you know, back in 1999 was this hook in the opening where it's like, in Washington Heights. And it reminded me a lot of Ragtime where they kind of have this like short little piano rag that really kind of anchors the whole show you know, it was the first thing that Flaherty and Aaron's wrote for the show and it becomes this like little feather in the cap. And I feel like the in Washington Heights like works really similarly in this way. So it is kind of amazing to see from start to finish this like winding process and then, you know, something so simple but like so iconic remains. And I think like I understand why they did 96,000 as their song but I think the opening number is really amazing and like the way that it builds and the way it like it really does you know pay homage to these like classic Broadway traditions of having the opening number where you kind of bring everyone in you introduce all the characters you introduce all their musical themes and 
And something I don't think we mentioned, but something that he talks about, um, like, was his real inspiration for writing the score was that, like, he wanted it to feel like when you're kind of, like, walking down the street and you can, like, hear everyone's different music coming out of their windows and, like, out of the cars and it, like, all kind of seamlessly melds together. And it's, you know, you get, like, a different style every few steps. And I think the opening number more than anything really, um, like, has that vibe to it. Yeah, it's a great opening number. And I think that, like, where it really does shine are kind of, like, these big, brassy ensemble numbers more yeah. so than... I think that I think that they do have a lot of integrity and are good, but I think kind of, like, the more serious ballad numbers don't stand up to the, like, bigger numbers that the show has. For some reason, like, I knew all of the songs, but I don't think I had ever listened to it straight through um, from start to finish, and... Uh, it's good. I had a lot of fun. But like, I do think that like at times it feels like a little Sesame Street-ish, <laughs> which I had written down and then I later read and I think uh, Charles Isherwood's maybe off-Broadway. Said uh, it was Sesame Street-ish? Yeah. But I don't think that's a bad thing. No, I don't think it's a bad thing either. Yeah. And I, um, it's good that this is something that's able to be like done in high schools and whatever, you know, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I think it's like true to who Lin is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like he's yeah. not really like a dark guy. Yeah. Leading up to this, he was a substitute teacher at Hunter College High School. And this is the type of show that someone who <laughs> daylights or moonlight, I guess in this case, daylight <laughs> um, as a substitute teacher would write. <laughs> well, and Hamilton too. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's make history fun, kids. So the performance starts with him. I think it's the only one that doesn't have someone separate introduce it. Like starts with Whoopi having Lynn up there with her. This is the incredible, talented Lin-Manuel Miranda. Creator and star of our next nominee for Best Musical. Baby, just do your thing. Do it in the Heights. Do your thing. Okay, got it. Lights up on Washington Heights, up at the dawning. I wipe down the awning. Hey, y'all, good morning. And then he breaks into a little, a little bit of In the Heights. Yeah. And it's like, I think it's very smart, both from a writing perspective and a marketing perspective, that he has, a, you know, a Cole Porter shout out, like, early in the opening number mm -hmm. to be like, don't worry, you're safe. <laughs> like, <laughs> Me and my cousin running, just another dime a dozen, mom and pop stopping shop, and oh my God, it's gotten too darn hot. Like my man Cole Porter said, people come through for a few cold waters and the lottery ticket just a part of the routine. Everybody's got a job, everybody's got a dream. And then they do 96,000, which is about, they find out that his bodega has sold a winning lottery ticket for $96,000, which I think is interesting because it's like, that's like, I think that's a very deliberate amount of money where it is like, it's a lot of money, but it's not like someone won like $5 million. You mm -hmm. know, it's like enough to change someone's life if they're sort of living kind of like paycheck to paycheck, but it's not like what we would think of as, you know, you're set for life, whatever. So I think that was like a really smart decision. Yeah, I think it will become kind of timeless, but I think that it kind of like does, like what you just said, like makes it not, I don't know. It kind of feels like a little errorless because of that. I don't know if it's necessarily because of that, but I think in general, I don't know. But you know what's not errorless is the Donald Trump reference. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll be a businessman richer than Nina's daddy. Donald Trump and I own the lease and he's my caddy. And you know what I thought was interesting is like going back to the other Donald Trump reference we've discussed in Great Big Stuff is that like Donald Trump gets dropped by two sort of upwardly mobile guys who are like talking about a social class that they aspire to. I don't think it's a coincidence. And yeah. I, th I think it has been removed um, yeah. since then. It's Tiger Woods now. Yeah, they changed it to Tiger Woods. But there's actually a funny little article about 
um, they mention Dirty Rotten Scoundrels in it, but they don't know if anyone's changed it. But but the other show that they um, call out... Avenue Q? Yes, yes, with the George Bush lyric. On the flip side, Avenue Q, which still runs off-Broadway until April, has replaced George Bush with Donald Trump in for now. The I lyric... think, I feel like it's replaced it with a bunch of different things over the years. Yeah, that actually would make sense. That one's easy, because it's like, it's not a real lyric, they just kind of like shout yeah. a word <laughs> or two words. It's a good performance, I yeah. think. And it's sort of in the power position, kind of late in the evening, so you can tell that that was the one that they were going to be like keep watching and the heights is going to perform mm-hmm. oh and, and we should mention his uh acceptance speech which i think is very iconic we both it seems like we have differing opinions on it yeah i used to dream about this moment now i'm in it tell the conductor to hold the baton a minute i'll start with alex lackamore and bill sherman kevin mccullum jeffrey seller and jill Furman, kiara for keeping the pages turning Tommy Kale for keeping the engine burning, for being so discerning through every all-nighter. Dr. Herbert for telling me you're a writer. I have to thank Andy Blank for every spank. Matter of fact, thank John Bazzetti for every drink. Thank the cast and crew for having each other's back, son. I don't know about God, but I believe in Chris Jackson. It's a little much, and it, like, I don't want to, like put my issues off onto him (laughs) but like it makes me feel embarrassed i don't feel it's not like i feel embarrassed for him i think it just like makes me feel a little embarrassed yeah i think it's like that level of earnestness and excitement i think you're not the only person to react that way i think sometimes i feel that way about him too it's really like you know he really uh is like putting it all out there in a way that like not a lot of people feel comfortable doing and i think that's part of the reason why people kind of have this like backlash against him i also love that he named checks sondheim and he's like look mr sondheim i made the hat mr sondheim look i made a hat where there never was a hat it's a latin hat at that but like Sondheim's getting a lifetime achievement award that he did not show up to. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, and Sondheim also references that. He also references finishing the hat and Sunday in the Park with George performs that night. So mm-hmm. it's all it all comes together. I think there are at least three very iconic speeches tonight. I think this one. I think Patty's speech. Oh my God! Shut up! It's been twenty nine years. <laughs> Mark Rylance's weird poem that he does are three, like, Tony history worthy. When, when you're in town, wearing some kind of uniform is helpful. Policeman, priest, etc. Driving a tank is very impressive, or a car with official lettering on the side. I think that I was surprised that it did not sweep, but I think that everything that it won in was well-deserved. Yeah, and I think one thing we didn't talk about, and maybe we will talk about when we get to revivals, is that, like, you know, the new musicals had a lot of new stuff going on, and they were up against extremely old-school revivals of, like, the most classic, beloved, lauded, you know, two of them have Pulitzer Prizes musicals. Yeah. And Greece. And Greece. <laughs> Doing this so close to 94, it's like Greece is back like herpes, you know, with these yes. like three other totally in a different league shows and Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that next time. Yeah. And it's cool that Hamilton's now at the Richard Rogers Theater. Yes. Um, because I think that it was very intentional that In the Heights was at Richard Rogers and Lynn described 
like in the podcast while why he or in the interview that was done for the Broadway backstory podcast about like why he specifically loved the theater which kind of just bubbles down to like a personal <laughs> preference I mean it is a great theater and yeah. now he's gonna be squatting in it forever I remembered one more interesting coincidence between Passing Strange and Hamilton, or in between In the Heights, which is that Lynn and Stu both had new shows at the public in 2015 slash 2016, Hamilton, obviously, and Stu and Heidi's show was called The Total Bent. And The Total Bent was, it was pretty well reviewed, but like Stu was, you know, again, the bridesmaid and it didn't, you know, it didn't transfer. I think that while... Stu does kind of like in a very like glib way be like I don't care about theater like I think that like what he is doing is very much in line with like a lot of like the history of like black performance whether it is like embracing it or rejecting it and like charting his own new territory so with that being said Passing Strange opened at the Belasco Theater February 28th 2008 and it closed July 20th 2008 after 165 performances books and lyrics by Stu and then the music he collaborated with his ex-girlfriend, yeah. Heidi Rodewald. And it was directed by Annie Dorson and choreographed by Carolee Armitage. And the synopsis is, a heartfelt, one-of-a-kind musical event, Passing Strange takes audiences on a journey from Los Angeles to Amsterdam to Berlin and beyond. Rock musician Stu makes a powerful debut as a playwright and narrator, telling the story of a nameless youth who's on a quest to find the real. On the way, this young African-American middle-class man discovers what a bohemian life really involves, passing through the world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and all the ups and downs in between. So this show was also developed over several years. It started as a cabaret piece called Travelogue of Demonically Energized Souls. The public theater, I think in 2003, commissioned them to make it, to expand it into a theater piece. And so they developed it at Berkeley Rep and brought it to the public. And the title, Passing Strange, comes from Othello. And it's from a speech where Othello is talking about how he won Desdemona. And the passage is, My story being done, she gave me for my pains a world of sighs. She swore in faith, t'was strange, t'was passing strange, t'was pitiful, t'was wondrous pitiful. She wished she had not heard it, yet she wished that heaven had made her such a man. And so he said that the quote reminds him of a rock musician who tries to attract a girl with his on-the-road stories. And then passing is also a reference to you know, African-Americans passing as white. And that was like my initial reading of it. So Stu and Heidi had been working together since 1997. They played together in Stu's Afro-Baroque ensemble called The Negro Problem. And Heidi is like very, a very cool character. Like she's really, you know, it's sort of that classic pairing of Stu where he's sort of like the really out there attention grabbing guy. And she's like very quiet. She kind of has like a Chrissy Hind vibe where she's like, 
you know, got this shag and, you know, wears like a cool suit. I think they're a really, a really fun pairing. Something like I thought it was interesting that In the Heights really got compared to Rent a lot when I think it really doesn't have that much in common with it. And I think Passing Strange is actually a lot more similar. Like, I think Passing Strange is a much more sort of self-aware it's if rent had like self-awareness to about sort of being like trying to pass as this bohemian artist when you like come from privilege and like you know what you do for your art like what it means to sell out like I thought the scene where they have where he's like living in Berlin with all of these like anarchist political artists and they're all like uh we have to go home to our families for Christmas yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I thought that felt very rent to me and I also think that there's like feels like there's an element of Tommy in it the who's yeah. Tommy too I think that like where rent and in the heights suffer from like their realness i think that them being like well now we have to like tie this up in the way that musicals are tied up i think that both in the heights and rent have like second act problems whereas like i kind of think that because of the nature of this and the lack of structure it doesn't really have the same problem yeah and i think i always sort of i didn't avoid this show but i never really got into it because i think i was always turned off by the description of it being a musical for people who don't like musicals, which is always like a red flag for me. But I, uh, this, this show is awesome. It's like Rent meets Sunday in the Park with George. Yeah. I was totally blown away by it. And I think it helps that Spike Lee came and filmed, I think he filmed the last two performances and made it into a film. And like, I've seen a lot of these filmed Broadway show presentations and I think they're never ever done by like, you know, an A-list director like Spike Lee. And I think that really Mm -hmm. like sets this one head and shoulders just in terms of the care and the artistry to really try to translate the experience of seeing the show live, like have it come through in the film version. And I think it really, um, it's really successful. Yeah, no, totally. So this is from the New York Times review of the Broadway version. A rock and roll autobiography of an artist in search of himself. Passing Strange is bursting at the seams with melodic songs, and it features a handful of theatrical performances to treasure. It is undeniably playing on Broadway after transferring from a summer run at the public theater downtown. But please don't call it a Broadway musical. You could scare away too many people who might actually enjoy it. Call it a rock concert with a story to tell, trimmed with a lot of great jokes. Or call it a sprawling work of performance art, complete with angry rants and scary drag queens. Call it whatever you want, really. I'll just call it wonderful and a welcome anomaly on Broadway, which can use all the vigorous new artistic blood it can get. It also moved me, as it did not downtown, in its consideration of the hard bargains that must be struck with life in order to pursue a career in art. If that sounds familiar, perhaps it is because the opening of Passing Strange comes just a week after that of another Broadway musical about an artist struggling to reconcile the demands of his vocation with his duty to love. I suspect that George Seurat brought to life again in the splendid new revival of Stephen Sondheim's and James Lapine's Sunday in the Park with George would find much in common with the sardonic songwriter whose presence on a Broadway stage is every bit as unlikely. As the painter sees life through the distancing prisms of color and light, Stu looks at the people in his world and sees songs to be written. People like me, we feel like art is more real than life, he says toward the end of the show. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that that comparison was like immediately something that I thought of, but yeah, it totally reads. Yeah, and it's like, despite Stu not having a musical theater background, there definitely is this sort of heritage that it's unintentionally drawing on. I know that the criticisms are that it's territory that has been done before, but it's like, how many different experiences do people really have? And it's like, the specifics, like his specific experience of, you know, growing up like upper middle class and black in California and, you know, going to Europe. That's like something that is not, I don't think has been overexplored. And I think that like, I think that the music itself, the interesting kind of like mashup of it really speaks to this like 
strange experience that he has like it is overwhelmingly like feels rock in one of the reviews they outline where all the influences are coming from the music is straight ahead guitar driven rock rather than rhythm and blues though of course the line between them is easily blurred as Stu searches for his own musical voice the desperate styles referred to range from 60s euro pop to 70s punk to 80s electronic to Gilbert and Sullivan and Kurt Bile. The New York Times review of the filmed version, going back to kind of the overall themes and like whether or not it's new and like who cares. I think this is A.O. Scott. The child, as Wordsworth said, is father of the man. Or as Stu puts it, adulthood is the consequence of decisions made by a teenager. And while there is a measure of sad wisdom in this observation, and in the raised brows and weary head shakes in which Stu now reflects on Stu then, Passing Strange celebrates the same foolish, heedless passion that it mocks and sometimes regrets. Strip the story down to its essentials, and you can find the not especially exceptional tale of a spoiled, privileged kid wandering through foreign capitals, dabbling in legal drugs, sexual exploration, radical politics, and avant-garde art. That this highly unflattering interpretation lingers around the edges of Passing Strange is a tribute to the musical's good-natured, unassuming honesty. And it is Stu's refusal to sentimentalize his life that makes him a trustworthy guide to do it. I think this was the big surprise of the season for me, like, not really sort of knowing what to expect. Yeah, I don't think that this is, like, the sh- a type of show that's meant to, like, have a marathon run. No. And Stu and Heidi actually were both, like, we were kind of relieved that it closed just because of, like... The schedule was really, uh, you know, wearing them down, like the Broadway schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, It was tough for them to perform it together since they were like exes. It was just (laughs) emotionally difficult. So I think, you know, in a way, like them losing and like closing so quickly is not necessarily a tragedy. And and it got preserved, which is, you know, all you can hope for. It's bittersweet, but (laughs) I think it did what it needed to do. (laughs) And actually, um, Vulture interviewed Stu and they said, how did you feel about In the Heights winning for Best Musical? And Stu said, I actually feel like they were the Best Musical because I don't think we were really a musical to begin with. We were the best passing strange and there's no award for that. That's such a good attitude. I think so too. Like, I think, you know, coming in as like a real outsider and not really being into the scene, you got to have that kind of perspective on it. Yeah, I would be really curious to see like how the voting really broke down between, you know, this over 700 people. Like it seems like with the book question, I like, you know, Stu ends up winning for best book. And I feel like I like wonder if like all of the votes were just like super divided and like he won by just a little bit or the New York Times did have their usual poll where they sort of pull like two dozen Tony voters and do a little write up of how the wind is blowing. Mm-hmm. And so they said, Heights is definitely the front runner. It leads in the poll for score and to a lesser extent for choreography, though Crybaby would not be a surprise there. Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Heights, is a student of the classics, and the show is in some ways the most traditional in the category, an old-fashioned story of people torn between family and fortune told by a young man with a dream. As one voter said, it's like Yiddish theater in the barrio. In that sense, it could draw the old line vote. On the other hand, with a mostly Latino cast, a creative team that looks right out of college, and a score based on hip-hop, salsa, and reggaeton, it also draws the votes of those looking to drag Broadway out of the good old days. So that's an advantage in both directions. The energy behind Heights, however does not compare with the fervency of the believers in Passing Strange, the musical-slash-rock concert that transferred uptown from the public theater. Partisans of Passing Strange pop up everywhere, even on the road, arguing that it is the true groundbreaker this season. Yet even those who voted for Passing Strange said they believed it didn't have a chance. Still, when it's this close, you are wise to surrender all responsibility and bow to the math. And the poll numbers say, Passing Strange. 
So I thought that was kind of an unexpected summation of that that paragraph. I was expecting them to be like in the heights. Yeah, no, wow, that is actually so super surprising. And in the um, Isherwood and Brantley did the like will win, should win. They mm-hmm. both, they didn't seem to think Passing Strange would win, but they favored it in pretty much every category in should win. And also... I thought that having Daniel Breaker in Best Supporting Actor is real category fraud because, like, I know they didn't want to have him competing with Stu in Leading Actor, but he's absolutely a leading actor. He's, like, on stage the whole show. I did have one more quote from Stu about how, like, you know, most rock musicals don't actually have... It's debatable whether or not they have actual rock music. We knew we were going to invent something, Stu says, because we kind of knew this hadn't been done before. The goal being to bring the actual music that one hears in a club to the stage, not through some kind of theatrical musical theater filter. You know, rock musical. That term rock should really be in quotations, right? Because it's not really rock music that anyone who likes rock music would actually listen to. And I also think, you know, we were sort of talking about how Daniel Breaker, who really gives an incredible performance in this turns around and immediately goes into Shrek. But now he's currently in Hamilton as Aaron Burr. So it really is like the agony and the ecstasy of being a musical theater actor in this era. Just a couple other things about Stu. Before this, his like biggest mainstream exposure was that he wrote the song Gary's Song for an episode of Spongebob. <laughs> he wrote and performed it. Gary, I'm sorry I neglected you. Oh, I never Yeah, I was kind of surprised that Stu, well, not that surprised, but I think that he has like a huge cult following. Yeah, and he does he does win Best Book, which I think, all love and respect to Xanadu, um, I think that is, you know, I'm glad it didn't walk away yeah. empty-handed. <laughs> Um, and he and they don't even show his speech on the air, but they do have the clip of him being like, I thought this was going to happen like an hour from now. So I was like looking for some M&Ms in my pocket, you know, or something. So, uh... And I know that this might be not the right podcast to talk about this on. But since In the Heights already eligible for the drama desks the year before, Passing Strange was really able to sweep at the drama desks this year. So good for them. Yes. So that being said... I do not think that this performance really did them any favors. Yeah. I think more than any show, like I think a lot of shows suffer from having their songs done out of context on the Tonys. Mm -hmm. I think this one, like, because I had watched it again, like even before we did this podcast and I was like, I know like people think good things about Passing Strange, but this performance is really like alienating and weird. And then like once I had seen it in context, I was like, this is amazing. Like this is a real, you know, moment of catharsis, but just showing it no context. Context, and then following it up immediately with like a South Pacific performance, it just shows you know how really like out of place it is in like capital B Broadway commercial that the Tonys were trying to be. Jumping off of that, I think coming into it, I was expecting just the way that the show is staged, it's kind of perfect for like a television performance because it's not like it doesn't rely on like huge ensemble or big moving sets. It's like theater at its like most simple, but I do agree. I was surprised that they chose the number that they chose because it's like at such like a junction point that um, I did not expect. As someone who doesn't know the show, it just seems so strange and doesn't make any sense. I think it was like a real showstopper in the theater, but it's like, I think it's hard to recapture that 
just performing it out of context. And I also think they could have set it up better. But I did like the, <laughs> the both. counting the, crows the guy. The counting crows guy gives the counting crows guy. His name is Adam Duritz, I mm-hmm. believe. But he he's like you know longtime friends with Stu, and he gives the like sweetest, most like earnest and excited intro to him. I was really like I know. I don't really know that much about Counting Crows. I know people like to hate on him for having like white guy dreads, but I was so charmed by that intro. I'm so proud to be here right now. Uh, the first time I heard my friend Stu and Heidi's band, The Negro Problem, was in this tiny record store in London like a decade ago. But when Passing Strange opened on Broadway, it was like the whole world got to hear my favorite band. Or as Stu would put it, they got to feel the real. And join me in welcoming my roommate Stu and my friend Heidi Rodewald, their fellow Tongan nominees, Deidre Aziza and Daniel Breaker, and all my brothers and sisters in the cast of Passing Strange. Yeah, no, that was actually so sweet. I remember, like, I was kind of, like, not paying that much attention, and I was like, oh my god, is that the... <laughs> well, I think they were roommates. He said they were roommates. Yeah, they were roommates. Yeah. Oh my god, they were roommates. Yeah, I also think a good connection to It and Rent is that it does have a nice little art house cinema call out <laughs> in one of its songs in the Godard. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is how passing strange does it! So, on to Xanadu. So Xanadu opened July 10th, 2007, closed September 28th, 2008 with 512 performances, book by Douglas Carter Bean, music and lyrics by John Farrar and Jeff Lynn, directed by Christopher Ashley, choreographed by Dan Nectages, and the source is the 1980 American musical and fantasy film of the same name starring Olivia Newton-John. And the synopsis is, Xanadu follows the journey of a magical and beautiful Greek muse, Kira, who descends from the heavens of Mount Olympus to Venice Beach, California in 1980 on a quest to inspire a struggling artist, Sunny, to achieve the greatest artistic creation of all time, the first roller disco. Hey, it's 1980. But when Kira falls into forbidden love with the mortal Sunny, her jealous sisters take advantage of the situation, and chaos abounds. So the movie is one of these, you know, iconic flop cult classics. It was one of the worst flops of the 80s. Xanadu. It's a love story about a boy and girl from two very different worlds, whom no one can keep apart. But it had one of the best-selling soundtracks. Of the whole decade. And... Something I thought was interesting is that a lot of the like press around it, and even Douglas Carter Bean calls it a jukebox musical, but it's not a jukebox musical. It was written, the songs in the show were written, or the songs in the, the movie were written for the movie. Well, a lot of them were, but then like Evil Woman was like... You're right. I forgot about that. But yeah, it's it's not like, it isn't like the Electric Light Orchestra jukebox musical. Exactly. And it's, the other thing is that ELO really gets name checked a lot, but half of the songs were written by John Farrar, who was like Olivia Newton-John. Um, big songwriter and wrote all of her hits like he wrote physical he wrote i think he wrote like hopelessly devoted to you for greece so like she kind of is carting this guy around everywhere yeah (laughs) the movie has its like own interesting like source material where um there was like a rita hayworth movie down to earth that served as the basis which is like about rita hayworth as like a greek muse who like stumbles down to earth and joins like a broadway chorus (laughs) 
Um, which also like, you know, in the forties there were a string of, cause that was like technically a sequel to this movie, a matter of life and death, which like also features like someone who falls from heaven and joins civilian life. And then we have the famous Powell and Pressburger stairway to heaven film. So it's like, it's, is like an interesting like genre of people falling to earth from heaven, um, <laughs> that I think kind of like a musical comedy serves it yeah. like makes it makes a lot more sense than I think people give it credit for. Did we say this before the show started? We were talking about how it's rare that like Douglas Carter Bean is really seen like the the book writer is really seen as the driving creative force behind the show. Yeah, we said we were talking about that oh. before we were recording. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. And the, so the book was totally rewritten by Douglas Carter Bean, who you know is sort of this kind of irreverent uh, playwright who had written. He had to play um, The Little Dog Laughed, and that was a success. Mm-hmm. So, And he also interpolated a little bit of Clash of the Titans into it, going back to its heritage. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a funny New York Magazine piece about the production that also profiled him that was sort of coming from the angle of, like, a Xanadu musical? Who would want that? And he had some very good sound bites in it. Bean liked the music, too. Besides... I love the idea that it played into Broadway's tendency to take itself seriously in a really aggressively provocative way, Bean says. You don't like jukebox musicals? We'll give you two jukebox musicals in one. You don't like movies on stage? We're going to take the worst movie ever made. How about that? I blame cocaine, says Bean, of the film's glazed messiness. It's like people say, when you hear Ray Charles play, you can hear the heroin. When you watch Xanadu, you can see the cocaine up on the screen. (laughs) Consequently, Xanadu is a secret pop culture club that works on both distant and deeply affecting levels. You can openly scoff at the storyline, but secretly admire the songs. I didn't realize the following Xanadu had until I started touring again and started singing the songs, says Newton John. Everyone loves to sing along to magic in Xanadu. I think people connect with the music mostly. I also think everyone loves a bit of fantasy. There is so much reality on TV and films and on stage these days. I think that everyone likes to escape a bit. Nothing I've ever done has captured New Yorkers' imagination and lack of imagination like this show, says Bean. People freak out. You can't do this. It's just been so much fun to watch. There was one of those let's talk about the big shows coming to Broadway this spring shows on television, and I watched the whole segment of people screaming, not having a spirited debate, but just screaming about Xanadu. Jesse Green of the Times was howling, why, why? I've always wanted to do something like Thornton Wilder, where something mystical enters into ordinary life, he says. It took me a while to realize what I was searching for was in Xanadu. It was just so incredibly well disguised by a lack of craft. I've been wanting to talk about creativity. What does it really mean in the world? Why do we create as a way of postponing mortality? But if I said I was doing an evening of that, no one would come. I love that in Xanadu, you can have this guy in satin shorts, roller skates, and surfer dude accent saying, I need to create. In its raw form, the show reveals itself to be nearly 100% over-the-top commentary in the script, which is relentlessly hysterically funny, and 100% emotional sincerity in the songs. The impression is one of aggressively self-aware romanticism, a polyglot sensibility unfamiliar to Broadway. Today, the word camp, says Bean, is sort of like when people say black politicians are well-spoken. It's a way of dismissing. I've run into the last vestiges of manliness in American theater. In one of the first plays I wrote, a straight man said, I don't like gay people. And someone said to him, do you think they're coming on to you? And he said, no, I think they're laughing at me. And I think that really is a terror. It's been a constant stream of it's camp, it's camp, it's camp. Well, it's got to be more than that, Bean says. It's got to be 100 minutes long. I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff in there. Yeah, no, totally. It is also interesting, too, that this is, like, up against... Well, we'll get to talking about Crybaby, but it's, like, while I do admire, you know, both Passing Strange and In the Heights, like, I do think that there is this, like, heroic, like, 
you know, straight man character <laughs> at the center of each of them who's like, not your average straight man. Like, he's sensitive, like, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, no, I think that, too, with that, um, he mentions, like, Thornton Wilder. And, you know, I think that at this time, you know, thinking of, like, Sarah Rule's Eurydice play, like, or even, you know, this season off-Broadway, she had her play Dead Man's Cell Phone. I think that this, more than, like, I anyone would probably expect like had more things borrowed from like the esteemed American theater. Yeah. And like the section where he's talking about, you know, creativity and art, that is also very Sunday in the park with George. Mm -hmm. So Xanadu was the only one of the original musicals I saw and I loved it. I think it is just absolutely delightful. It introduced me to Cheyenne Jackson who is so funny in this and really got snubbed for a Tony nomination. Mm -hmm. Like he could have just been, and he was a replacement because the original, well, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but, mm-hmm. and also having Mary Testa and Jackie Hoffman as the evil <laughs> sisters, like what an incredible pairing. We truly were not worthy. <laughs> and Mary Testa has this, like her vocal range, even just in terms of her speaking voice, the way that she can fluctuate between like speaking very, very low and this sort of like shrill, shrieky high register is so funny and like so well uh, employed in this. <laughs> I didn't really know who Carrie Butler was. Like I had, I've been into Hairspray, but I'd never really investigated who was in it. But she is also like, you know, everyone is just like so funny and and. You know, I had known her at this point because she was in the Little Shop revival that I had the recording of, and I think that she really, really sells herself. And originally, um, so in the workshop readings, it was Jane Krakowski and. Cheyenne Jackson and Jane dropped out saying it was scheduling conflicts but like in the New York Magazine article they're like 30 Rock stopped shooting in April and like the show would have started in May or whatever so I think she was probably just scared or maybe she you know had had a bad experience on the Mystic Pizza musical (laughs) you know Jojo when life keeps handing you anchovies just cover them up with some extra cheese and make a pizza. And so they brought in um, James Carpinello to replace Cheyenne Jackson, and he broke his foot. I don't know if it was during previews or during rehearsals. And then they brought in Cheyenne to be like, you know, the temporary replacement, and then he just ended up staying. Of Carrie Butler's uh, performance, the New York Times Review says, Carrie Butler, as the Greek demigoddess Clio, who also roams Venice Beach as the Australian mortal Kira, is simply heaven on eight little polyurethane wheels, or heaven in leg warmers. Actually, she's both. She's got a lovely line in arabesque on those skates, too. Can Audra McDonald or Kristen Chenoweth do that? You know, I think Audra McDonald absolutely could do that <laughs> based on the 110 in the Shade performance where she does like a one-handed front flip, <laughs> which is not something we have ever seen before or again. Yeah. So who knows what she could do. But the roller skates did scare some of the members of the cast. Well, and a lot of people got hurt. I, there was a funny article <laughs> where three people were injured roller skating and then unrelated to that, the house manager fell down the stairs and broke his foot. Oh no. <laughs> so everyone was getting injured. And Tony Roberts had a clause in his contract where he was like, I do not want to be on roller skates. I think that's really smart. <laughs> and also when Whoopi stepped in for Jackie Hoffman for a few weeks, she also refused to be on roller skates. I mean, based on the few experiences I've had on roller skates, I'm extremely <laughs> impressed with all of them. I just want to read some of the Hilton Owls review, which is so hyperbolic that I'm obsessed with it. 
Xanadu at the Helen Hayes is so ridiculously brilliant, so lavish and sublime a confection that any set of adjectives you might come up with after a single viewing will more than likely be replaced by another set of ineffectual adjectives once you've seen the show a second or third time. It's probably the most fun you'll have on Broadway this season, one reason being that everything about it is so resolutely anti-Broadway. In its wildness and ecstasy, Xanadu is a welcome relief from the synthetic creations that some Broadway producers have been peddling for years. Here you can't count the disco balls fast enough, not to mention the roller skates, the frosted pink lips, and the glittering spandex that the director, Christopher Ashley, hurls at you like a PCP flashback. Xanadu is far sleazier and cheesier than conventional musical theater, and it points out just how tame most other musicals are. So he loved it. Yeah, no, he gave it a glowing review. And like, I think that his mention of the director is something that I wanted to bring up. Like, I think that this guy was the right guy because he had directed the 2001 Rocky Horror revival. I feel like they were like, who has like kind of brought like a midnight movie camp fest into the theater and probably did a lot of things right, but also probably made mistakes that he learned from. So it's like, I feel like they got the right guy. Yeah, and I think... I think like there was an article about, you know, the producing team and how young they were. And I think, you know, the biggest obstacle was getting people to kind of push away their perceptions of what the movie is and what they thought the musical was going to be. And there's this like little anecdote at the end where two of them were at a pizzeria near Times Square and they like overheard one of the waitresses talking shit about like the idea of a Xanadu musical. He asked the waitress to spread the love at least until she saw it. And she said, well, if you give me tickets. So he gave her two tickets. And then he said, I'll give her a 99% chance she's going to have a good time. That's our approach tomorrow marketing we're gonna love you until you realize you love us back which i think is uh i think it's a very an extremely likable show yeah and it had a successful tour after it closed something about this season overall and especially with this show is that like you know going back to 94 when we were talking about how the shows were trying to talking about using you know infomercials and pay-per-view to try to sell the show like I feel like this is really one of the first seasons that was really embracing like internet marketing in the heights like lynn had a very active YouTube channel that I think he still uses under the name Usnavi is just his YouTube name but he did I think the most famous is he did like a parody of the Legally Blonde show to like recast L. he did it to recast the Paragua guy called Legally Brown and he had like all of these Broadway celebrity cameos if Hunter cries one more time I'm gonna beat the out of him and he did you know a parody of Umbrella with Abuela <laughs> because when the sun shines we'll shine which is cute and also is very like, very much a time capsule of like that type of internet content. Yeah, um, and, and The Heights also had a very active MySpace page. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Xanadu did a really funny series about this fake like Tony campaign manager called Cubby Bernstein, who's played like a <laughs> child act, played by a child actor, who I think actually ended up being in The Addams Family. Yeah. You know, like the first episode is him like photoshopped into all these old photos, like behind the scenes at like Sweeney Todd being <laughs> like, I said more blood. <laughs> and so I remember watching that at the time and thinking it was, uh, it was very, it was very well done. It's a smart, it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, they... Like, in this underdog season, they really were the underdogs that maybe could have pulled it off. But then, as the cast assembled and thought of Cubby's many and varied plans, they came to a cold realization. It was Mary Testa who first spoke to Cubby. She had done a large number of New York shows, and they had left her centered and zen-like. Hey, yo, Cubby, 
You know, uh, I've done a large number of New York shows, so it's left me feeling very centered and zen-like. And I say that even if we don't win this award... You're gonna win that Tony. Please let me speak. You are going to win that Tony. Please, please let me speak. Even if we don't win this award, our lives, our careers, they're still valid. That is loser talk! That is the talk of the loser! Yeah, no, it is interesting because, especially now, because obviously, like, I don't need even need to say this, but, like, social media so powers this theater fan culture. Yeah, because they say, like, at the end of the day, for a show, like, word of mouth is really the number one motivator that gets people to see shows. Mm -hmm. There was a funny profile of the musical director, who was this guy, Eric Stern, who they profiled him because he comes from, like, a very classical background. Like, he has uh, conducted, like, multiple, you know, classical vocalists, CDs. He was the musical director of the um, Carousel Revival in 94. He did Hell Princess Candide. And he seems just like this sweet little nerd. I agree with your instincts that I was probably not the logical first choice for this material, Mr. Stern said diplomatically in a conversation before a recent matinee. But in my business, it's helpful to be good at a lot of things. In some ways, it's better to be a little bit good at a lot of things than really good at one or two. In the abstract, good is good, Mr. Stern said. There is good pop music and bad pop music, just as there is good legitimate theater music and God knows bad legitimate theater music. Mr. Stern was so free of condescension in discussing his work on Xanadu that he excused his use of the term legitimate in referring to the show's music that is his first love, the songs of Berlin and Gershwin and Lesser. Traditional is probably a better term, he decided. Not so long ago, after all, theater music was pop music. What's more, in describing how he went about creating new arrangements for songs working primarily from the movie soundtrack, Mr. Stern casually and unfacetiously referred to these infectious, flossy pop nuggets as tone poems. I bet even Miss Newton-John was unaware that she was lip-syncing tone poems while roller skating around the beach boardwalk back in the day. There are certain indisputably great musicals that are hard to face over and over again. Even some of the more important ones that I really like. When the music starts up, you think, oh dear, I've got to live this emotional life over again. It's hard. On the other hand, there are other musicals that are less complex, but are just sublimely fun to do. You walk in and say, great, let's do this again. By that standard, Xanadu is a great show to do. Which Aww. I thought was a great attitude. Yeah, that's so, yeah. and Lots that's of good attitudes this season. Yeah, that like taps it on the head. And I think also just like talks to this like bigger question that I feel like we posed in the beginning of the episode where it was like people were being like what's the new musical sound like i think that this like is someone speaking who like understands how it all works <laughs> yeah yeah and like that it's apples and oranges and one isn't necessarily better mm -hmm. than the other i think the last thing that i have to say is a line from the show where jackie hoffman's character describes it basically as children's theater for 40 year old gay men. <laughs> <laughs> it's accurate and yeah. uh and, and we love it exactly <laughs> So for the performance, they do um, Don't Walk Away, which is fine. It's a fine choice. Good performance. Yeah. And you got all the stars to get to be able to sing there. I could have used a little more Jackie. And... Oh, yeah. I would have loved an evil woman, even yeah. though I know that's not the point. <laughs> also, you know, obviously Starlight Express is like the musical on roller skates we all think of. But yeah, Little Mermaid was another musical on roller skates this season. Um, I think you mean Heelys. It's Heelys. very different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> God, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that soon.
Okay, so let's just do a little bit on Crybaby real quick. So Crybaby um, opened on April 24th, 2008, really sneaking in um, for the <laughs> deadline. deadline, and then it closed very soon after the Tonys on June 22nd, 2008, after only 68 performances. Um, you got a book by Thomas Meehan and Mark O'Donnell, and music and lyrics by David Haverbaum. I think it's probably Javerbaum. Javerbaum. I have no idea. And Adam Schlesinger, directed by Mark Brockow and choreographed by Rob Ashford. And the source material is the 1990 John Waters film of the same name. Synopsis. It's 1954. Everyone likes Ike. Nobody likes communism. And Wade Crybaby Walker is the coolest boy in Baltimore. He's a bad boy with a good cause. Truth, justice, and the pursuit of rock and roll. Crybaby and the square rich girl Allison are star-crossed lovers at the center of this world. Fueled by hormones and the new rhythms of rock and roll, she turns her back on her squeaky clean boyfriend Baldwin to become a drape, a Baltimore juvenile delinquent. And Crybaby's mall. I think there's only room for one John Waters Broadway musical at a time. I think Hairspray is such the obvious choice for so many reasons. Like, I, I think this is just like trying to go back to the gold mine in a really kind of gross, brazen way. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> and I think, you know, it didn't work for many reasons. The first one, I think, is that um, Crybaby kind of sucks. Yeah. Like, I get, you know, it's like the really the only other like family friendly John Waters show or John Waters movie. It's like kind of a musical already. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's probably only remembered because it has Johnny Depp in it. Mm-hmm. But like with Hairspray, you know, you have the emotional depth of like the civil rights plot line that can kind of sustain it into this expansion and elevation and like toning down kind of the edgier elements. Whereas like when you once you do that to Crybaby, it's like just grease warmed over. Yeah, it just feels like a superficial reading of John Waters whereas I feel like with Hairspray they like dug deeper and were like this is like what the show's about and like this is like how we can sustain it and make it work I do think that the dancing was amazing yes the dancing is amazing Rob Ashford is a sadist (laughs) Um, but I think the other thing that's kind of worth mentioning so the guys who wrote the music were other like more Broadway uh, newbies and it was um so David Javerbaum was the executive producer of The Daily Show, and Adam Schlesinger, um, I think, is most famous as being in Fountains of Wayne, but he also has an Oscar nomination for writing the title song for That Thing You Do. Um, and, oh, yeah, and that now, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and recently he's been, he wrote a lot of the songs for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I think he was like the main songwriter for that. And right now he and Sarah Silverman are working on adapting her book into a musical together the bedwetter bed yeah one. yeah 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 i i don't know i think that like also they take the rockabilly shtick a little too far with the score where yeah. i think a lot of the songs really blend together and you know it's funny like thinking about fountains of wayne's big hit with stacy's mom and like thinking about it it kind of is almost show tuney like it's really like a pastiche of 80s songs like jesse's girl it has like a character mm-hmm. story and point of view that's like obviously not the story of the person who's singing it like, it makes sense that he would go on to write these kind of songs 
that are pretty much all like comments on other songs. Yeah. I think in his whole body of work is like, that's kind of what he does. Yeah. He does well. And Stacy's mom, I feel like could be a crazy ex-girlfriend song. Now oh that, yeah. Now that I'm recasting <laughs> it out of these four musicals that are nominated, it's definitely the most traditional. Yeah. You would think it would be the, like, I feel like it belongs in the category with young Frankenstein, little mermaid, where it's like a known quantity trying to make lightning strike again and failing. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ben Brantley had some very unkind things to say about it, um, which kind of seemed deserved. But the Crybaby movie, going back to it, is very boring. Like, I have never made it, successfully made it all the way through. There's, like, really not much there. But I do love John Waters. I love that he's getting paid. Yeah. I love that he showed up and was like, it's me again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm back. Can you believe it? <laughs> So it was starring James Snyder and Elizabeth Stanley, who have both gone on to better things. Um, <laughs> I just I just saw James Snyder is playing Harry Potter right now, doing a lot with a pretty bad script. And I also saw him. He was a very good um, Billy Bigelow in Carousel at the Good Speed in Connecticut. So the song they perform it was really like a last ditch, like please buy tickets were so much fun. Their box office numbers are were really sad. But it's like, it's just like, I also just think it wasn't the time and place for this and nor... Especially the same season as a Grease revival. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this could have like stood, you know, I'm sure that there are people that love this show but i feel like it's something that i think could have stayed on the stove for a little longer (laughs) there was so it didn't get a cast recording it finally got a studio recording in 2015 and there was a small but extremely vocal group of people who were like when is crybaby getting a cast recording (laughs) for you know seven years and then finally they got their wish yeah and i think that like a good majority of the original broadway cast is on the recording and it's also like bubbling down john waters to this level i think doesn't do him any favor no i mean i'm excited to sort of dig into this in more depth when we get to hairspray because i think there is a lot to say on that topic but i don't think we need to say it about crybaby yeah but yeah there we i think i just saw news or let me see that another john waters film pecker is starting to get developed into a um, musical so or has been over the past few years i mean i think like you know i don't think his the rest of his filmography necessarily screams Broadway, but I think it definitely could be musicalized in sort of like an edgier uh, path. Yeah, so. But yeah, the performance is really amazing, but also like I feel really bad for everyone who is in it for having to perform those like Rob Ashford, all of his choreography is like, you know, it's like you don't need to show off like Mm -hmm. that these guys can, like they make them belt while they're like doing jumping jacks, you know, it just seems cruel. (laughs) I did like watching it, but, and you know, they, they are like tap dancing. It's, it's in jail while they're making license plates and they have them like tap dancing with the license plates on their feet, which is a lot of fun, but it made me feel weird watching it. Yeah. Well, it's also funny because it's like in Hairspray Live and the Hairspray movie, they got rid of the big dollhouse number, which I love. Yes. But it is like, of course, in a John Waters movie, you're going to like end up in jail. So that 
is that that's it that's that for this half yeah so next time we're going to talk about the revivals which were all very exciting we're going to talk about august osage county we're going to give one minute apiece to uh little mermaid <laughs> disney's the little mermaid the new mel brooks musical young frankenstein and a catered affair um which you know did their best to sell some more tickets despite not getting the big nomination. So you can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Rate and review on iTunes. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>